Good evening, everyone. It's great to see you. Welcome to uh, the first event of our Open Week, Life Beyond the Illusion. In case we haven't met before, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the ministers here at Christ Church, and it is great to welcome you here to the start of our Open Week. Tonight, we are delighted to have Rod Williams with us. Rod, thank you so much for joining us. You're all looking amazing, by the way. You're the best-looking audience I've had all day. <laughs> you are, honestly. It's true. <laughs> so, Rod, you're, you're currently based in Bradford. You're married to Kate. You have two daughters. How old are they? I've got um, a four-year-old, and I've got a 23-year-old. So I know what you're thinking. I don't look old enough to have a 23-year-old daughter. <laughs> How many of you were thinking that? Um, Okay, Uh, yeah, so yeah, big big age difference, but I'll I'll perhaps uh, tell you a bit more about that later on. That's interesting, that's a 19-year age gap. 19-year age gap, that's right. I've got a brother who's 19 years older than me. Oh, really? Okay, oh, wow, something in common. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, Rod, tell us a bit about the the work you do. Yeah, so actually recently, about two weeks ago, I finished uh, working for Christians Against Poverty. So I worked for CAP for 13 years, a charity that helps people out of financial crisis across the UK. So my role mainly was uh, heading up the evangelism for CAP. So I traveled around, spoke uh, hundreds and hundreds of outreach events, similar to, to tonight, at different churches that put, would put on events for clients. And I and I helped uh, with the training of some of our staff as well at CAP. So that was a big part of my journey for the last 13 years. But now, um, I've, uh, in 2014, I set up Real Deal Ministries um, when my book was published. Um, and part of the ministry is to get my book into prisons through fundraising and also speak in churches and uh, sort of offer training in evangelism and, again, outreach events. So I've sort of do, I'm able now to do more through Real Deal Ministries and also have um, um, a private business as well uh, where I get to do magic events at weddings and corporate events and things like that. And I do a bit of freelance work for other Christian organizations, so lots of What I tell people, I'm doing everything now that I really enjoy doing, working, operating in my sweet spot, and it's great. Brilliant. So, Rod, you're currently based in Bradford. How was the drive down today, by the way, in this heat? Well, I've done it in two two parts. I drove to, I stayed over at Wolverhampton last night, and uh, so that was about two hours, and it was about two and a half hours today. Okay. Hope you've got aircon in your car. Yes, (laughs) quite good aircon. It was yeah, much needed. So, Rod, although you're currently based in Bradford, you haven't always lived up north. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, your upbringing. Where were you born, and, um, and what was life like for you growing up? Sure. So, anybody guess where I was born? South Wales. Anybody get that? So, yeah, I'm a very proud Welshman. Um, I always tell people that um, I have a Welsh flag on my living room wall, which is fantastic because it doubles as a picture of my mother-in-law. And so uh, she's not really a dragon, she's lovely. So yeah, I was, uh, I was born in Wales and lived there till I was 10. So I had a really great upbringing. Um, I was brought up um, to go to church ever since uh, you know, a young age. I, that's all I ever knew of that church was what we did on a Sunday, sort of as a family, me, my mum, my dad, my older sister, Emma. And uh, I, I was about age four, my parents' marriage uh, broke down, they separated, later divorced. But even though that did happen, 
Um, both my parents remained a really healthy influence in mine and my sister's life, and I know that's not always the case, but it was for us. But so we were, you know, we experienced a lot of love from from my mum and my dad, and the family and the church we were in. And even though when I was going to church, I didn't really get the God stuff growing up, and I just went because that's what we did. I always remember how blessed and loved we were from the church and the hospitality shown to. My mum, my sister, and I, when, you know, when my dad left, and uh, we were just really blessed um, by that. So I've always got a lot of good memories growing up in Wales, and uh, yeah, it, you know, it couldn't have gone better, really. It was Correct. really, really good. Yeah, thanks, Rod. But your life took a bit of a turn, didn't it, in your, your latter teenage years? It did. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so what happened was, when I was 10, by the age of 10, both my parents had married other partners. So my mum married a man from Guernsey in the Channel Islands, a Christian man, an amazing uh, person who treated me and my sister like his own children. And so he had a, his own business on the island. He'd done really well, had his own garage um, business over there, and it just made sense for us to move to Guernsey. And Guernsey's a beautiful island, part of the Channel Islands. So for a 10-year-old, I was quite excited to move on to this island. That brought with it lots of good opportunities for me to do well. Like I say, my stepdad had done well. He owned a house that wouldn't have looked out of place in Hollywood. Lots of bedrooms and bathrooms and a swimming pool and the garden the size of a small football pitch. And I remember thinking, I had my own bathroom. And I thought I'd made it in life. I was only 10 years old. <laughs> and again, went to you know, church with him and uh, did the school thing, got my GCSEs, age 16. And again, really up until that age, again, just being surrounded by love and uh, an amazing family just really looked out for, for me. And, uh, and it was around that age that I started to make some... Um, some unwise choices. I'd done my GCSEs. I decided at this point that church wasn't for me because I'd never made that decision to become a Christian like a lot of my family had. Because it's interesting, a lot of people think just because they go to church that makes them a Christian or maybe they're brought up in a Christian family or or born in a Christian country and that makes them a Christian. But that's like saying if you're born in McDonald's, that makes you a Big Mac. It doesn't, does it? So I knew I wasn't a Christian and like I said, I didn't get the God stuff. 16, I said to my parents, that's it. I've I've had it with church. I don't want, you know, it's fine if you want to do what your Christian thing, but it's not for me. And around this point, I started to go to college, and I did a business studies course, because my dream job growing up was always to work in a bank. And in Guernsey, the finance industry was booming. I was good at maths at school, nothing else, really, and that was fine. I did my business, got my business studies course at college, and I knew that would open the door into the finance industry. So I'm at college now, and I'm meeting new friends, and I've gravitated away by this point from my church friends, and I'm making new friends at canteens times, people on other courses, and I just gravitated to this certain group, and they were a really popular group. Everybody sort of wanted to hang out with them and be around them, and I never really had that in school, and I suppose maybe in a sense at times I was quite envious of the popular group in school, but now this popular group wouldn't need to be part of their circle. And on a Monday, they would come into college and they would talk about what they'd got up to on the weekends, going to house parties, getting smashed off their face, drinking, taking, experimenting with drugs, and uh, doing all the things that my, my, pa- my parents had warned me against, because I didn't say, actually, earlier, that my, my dad was a policeman. He served 30 years in the police force, and my mum, for some time, were a sec- was a secretary to the chief of police in Swansea. So they obviously, you know, I knew, you know, the, the consequences of, of drug use and that kind of thing. Uh, but I was curious, 
And uh, after a few months, I started to go out with them, and I started to drink, and I started to experiment with the things they were doing, mainly drink, smoking cannabis at that point. And I'll be honest with you, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the buzz that smoking cannabis and taking perhaps some tablets that were being passed around gave me, but also that feeling of acceptance that this popular gang wanted me to be part of their group and it felt good. But I didn't think that I'd get drawn in. I didn't think I'd get addicted. I thought I was in control. And I probably was at that point, to be honest. It was just a bit of experimenting. Fast forward the clock, 18 months. I get my qualification. I'm age 18. And within a month, I get my dream job in the finance industry, um, initially as a trainee accountant. So I'm going to work suited and booted. Parents really proud. I'm happy. Everybody thinks, you know, great career path for me, you know, lots of opportunities. And then I had more money then to spend on the wrong things. And I went into the club scene and I started to, to take ecstasy tablets. That became my drug of choice. And I uh, started to take other club drugs. And how often were you doing this? Um, as much as I could on weekends, yeah. So Guernsey, there might be times where there, there wasn't maybe a couple of weeks where there weren't any in the island for whatever reason. Couldn't people getting caught or not getting through customs. Uh, but yeah, as much as I could. And they were £30 a tablet, so quite expensive. Um, so people, you know, take the risks because of the money involved. So, you so, so £30 a tablet, I mean, how much money were you spending just on drugs a month? Yes. I mean, at that point, probably nothing compared to I was five years down the line. So it might have been, I don't know, I don't know, £300, something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, probably, definitely £300. And then I started to, because I'm acquainted... I was very quickly widening my circle of friends and acquaintances, and that involved drug dealers. And one particular night, one of the dealers asked me to sell tablets for him. And he was almost like, Rod, you've got a good head on you. You've got a good job. Your family's got a good reputation on the island. The police aren't going to suspect you. This will pay for your weekend. He said, you can make £5 on each tablet. And I just saw the pound sign flash in front of me. I saw, this is an easy way to make extra money on the week. I didn't need to because I had a good job. Um, and I started to sell tablets. And the first night, I made, say, £100, paid what I needed to pay him. And very quickly now, I'm drawn into this world that promised me everything. It promised me power. It promised me pleasure. It promised me popularity. As the weeks went on, I would take on more and sell more and make more money, pay what I needed to pay my supplier. I would walk into um, pubs and clubs, and people would flock to me because they knew I had something that would supposedly make their weekend better. And I had this lust, unhealthy sort of lust was created in me for, for more, for more money, for more popularity, for more material things. And I, and I ended up going to the bookies and I started to gamble. And uh, I started to then come up with schemes and systems to beat the bookies. Because I'm thinking, you know, there's a lot of money to be made here. And I'd be up sometimes two, three, four hours in the night thinking of these schemes and systems. Um, long story short, um, that never worked out. Between the age of 18 and 24, I lost about £150,000 gambling. That's how strong a whole gambling addiction had on my life. So the money I was making from selling the drugs, because obviously as the months and years passed, I was selling a lot more quantities, um, a lot of money's worth. And, but now I was, I was losing all that in the bookies, which meant I was getting in debt with drug dealers and meant I had to get involved with smuggling drugs in my, to my early 20s to make more money now to pay off the debts that I was involved with through the gambling and through the, the money I, I owed some of my, my drug dealers, my suppliers. So your life basically 
spiraling out of control. It was spiraling out of control at rapid rate. It really did. And obviously, when you make choices in life, they have consequences, whether good or bad. And my choices now were not just destroying me. Because to be fair, the first three, two, three years, there were still elements that I was still enjoying it and believing that one day I'll make my million, pay my debts, I'll be fine. The next one will be the big win. The next importation will be enough to make money, pay off my debts, I'll be fine. I was believing that lie all the time, this illusion that it was all going to be okay, and, and, and it wasn't. And, uh, and I would always just go further down into that pit of despair. And those choices didn't just destroy me, but they destroyed my family, because very quickly they, I became unrecognizable to my family. They saw the, the change, the character change, the physical change, the emotional and mental change, because I became mentally unstable, emotionally unstable, because of the paranoia from taking the drugs. And because I, I wasn't just selling, I was taking as much as I could at the time as well. Still remember, I'm still working in, in the finance industry as well. So living two lives, and you know, it's interesting when I speak now to some of my work colleagues, and they saw you know this change in me at a rapid rate, and they tried to help me because you know, I'd get arrested on weekends and on suspicion of being involved in things my work would find out. I got caught with two ecstasy tablets when I was 21, and my boss in the bank, he gave me a second chance. I was in the paper named and shamed, and you know, he must have liked me because he's like, we're going to give you another chance, Rob. We'll do whatever it takes to help you. And he'd heard the rumors about the, the selling, and, but I would deny it. And, uh, but I never took that opportunity. I was trying to figure this out myself. I can do it in my strength, in my time. I'm not addicted. I'm okay. But it pained me seeing what I put my family through. It really did. Because my mum, she, yeah, was worried sick 24-7. You know, every time there was a knock on her door because their house had been raided on a number of occasions. So every time there was a knock or a phone call, be like, she'd be gripped with fear. My stepdad with more, was a bit more annoyed, really. And, uh, but also, like, what's Rod done this time? Is he in hospital? Is he in prison? Or even worse, because my dad would say to me, you're going to end up hospital, prison, six feet under, because that's what he saw through his work every day. My dad would fly over to the island, and he would confront me and say, I know who you're going out with, hanging out with you know, stop what you're doing, because he would speak to the police, and they would say what I was doing, and, and I kept on denying it, so leave me alone, you know, you, know, you can't be involved in, in, in my life anymore. And, uh, and it just pained me to see what I was putting them through, and it got a lot worse than that as yeah, so well. So where, where, where did this lifestyle eventually uh, lead you, Rod? Yeah, well, it eventually led me to prison, because in early 2001, um, I got involved with heroin. I became a heroin addict just from one afternoon of a few of us, probably 15 of us friends, just having a go, experimenting with this brown powder, smoking on the, on the foil, chasing the dragon. Didn't think we'd get addicted. We all got addicted straight away. And now there was even more of an acceleration of deterioration. Uh, I lost my job. I lost a house that I had a mortgage on. I uh, became in more debt. Any decent sort of friends that I did have, because I did have some really good friends, and uh, they were like, we can't help you anymore. They tried to help. Um, I was smoking heroin in the toilet, in work, in the bank, and, uh, and obviously I ended up having to lose my, give up my job because of it. And uh, ran off to Thailand at the end of 2001, became addicted to methamphetamine. Early 2002, came back, ended up in Brixton in London. That was my lowest point. I'm in this squat, I'm in this dark place, addicted to crack cocaine. And that was a time where I almost, 
the reality hit me. I woke up one morning in this squat, this lounge, this squalor, and I just saw a sea of bodies on the floor. People crashed out from the night before. And it was just dark. There was drug paraphernalia anywhere, everywhere. And I just started to cry as I saw my surroundings. And I thought, how on earth have I ended up at this place because of all the opportunities I had in life to do well, the most amazing family, and I've thrown it away. I owed a debt, and I thought, I need to get out of this life, but I need to pay this debt first. So I decided to get enough heroin and crack cocaine to take back to Guernsey to, to, to pay the debt. And I thought, this is going to be my journey to freedom. But actually, it was a journey to imprisonment because um, I got arrested. I was banged to rights at the airport, drugs found. And I knew I was headed for prison. I was looking at four to six years. And I got four years. So... so you're, you're a gambling addict, you're a heroin addict and meth addict. Um, you're now in prison serving a sentence. When did things begin to change for the better? Well, things now started to begin to change. As soon as I got arrested at the airport, things started to change for the better because now I'm in prison, a lot of time on my hands. Um, after just processing what I'd, been, you know, what I'd done and I started to build up a relationship with my family again and uh, although it shouldn't have been a surprise, you know, they were there for me most of them anyway, and I started to speak to my mum and my dad, and they were like, Rod, you know, you can't change the past, because none of us in here, we can't change our past, we can't. My mum said to me, Rod, your future can be different, we're here for you, we love you, we're going to help you through this difficult time. She said, but Rod, will you do one thing? I said, what? She said, will you give God an opportunity to show uh, himself real to you, because he's the only one that can change your life, nobody else but Jesus Christ, and I thought, okay, yeah, I'll have a think about that. And what they did, they sent me in lots of testimony books, similar to the one that I've written, uh, The Cross and the Switchblade, Run, Baby, Run, uh, Chasing the Dragons, some common books that, that perhaps some of you have read. And I started to read these stories, these stories of addicts and people's lives who were ravaged by extreme violence and addiction. And I was reading that along on their journey, they'd all had this radical encounter with Jesus Christ. This Jesus who I had preached in church for many, many years, but didn't really get or understand fully or wasn't sure if any of it was true or not. But now I'm reading about this Jesus impacting, bringing transformation to these lives and how these people now have gone on reading the books, helping other people, making a difference. And they would all talk about this peace that they had. And I recognized that I needed this peace. That that was missing in my life. I thought the money was going to give me peace, the, the, the popularity, the power thing, the materials, but it never did. I could have had 20 million pounds. I still would have felt empty inside. So there was something going on in my heart reading these books. I'd get emotional. And that was, I believe now, obviously, now that that was God saying to me, Rod, what you're reading in this, these stories with these, these, these men and women, this can be your reality. Freedom is available to you. You can experience my love. You can experience forgiveness. So I went on a journey up there thinking, is this, is this Jesus really the real deal that I'm reading about? Could he do that for me <clears throat> after everything that I've done? And in June 2002, I decided to take a step of faith. I'd been locked up for the night. And I thought, I want to do this properly. And you don't have to do this. I felt to do this. And I kneeled on the floor in my pad, in my cell. And I leaned over my bed. And I just started to cry out to God. And it wasn't a crisis prayer. We've all prayed then, perhaps, at times. This was a genuine prayer. If there was a real God out there that I'd heard preached about for so many years, I don't want to know. If this Jesus did die on the cross for me, so that I could have forgiveness and a brand new life and experience this peace and have hope, then I wanted to know. And I said, sorry, probably about a thousand times, sorry, God, for everything that I've done. Please, will you help me? And it was you know, a prayer of repentance because I really wanted to change my ways. 
And uh, after probably repeating those sentences, praying, crying out, just saying, help God, please, I want to know you. Um, When I got up from the pad floor, probably about after an hour, nobody could have convinced me otherwise that Jesus wasn't real. I knew straight away because I felt an explosion of God's love fill my heart that I'd never experienced before. And I felt a peace invade my whole inner being I'd never experienced before. I was experiencing the same peace that I was reading about in these books. And then as I went on to read the Bible, I was taught the Bible to talk about the peace that surpasses all understanding. You can't understand it, but it's real. And I was experiencing this peace that I couldn't understand, but it was real. And the Bible says it's a peace that you can't get from the world. It only can come from God, from heaven. And I know that peace can't come from the world. So I'm experiencing this peace, this love, but I knew I was forgiven. I knew there was hope because straight away, almost, I just knew things would be different. I'm still in prison. I've got bars around me, but inside, those internal bars were completely destroyed. And I was excited about my future. I still had two years of my sentence to go, rotten almost. It was three months into my sentence. And I got up the next morning, and that piece was still there. Um, and I started to read the Bible, and it was on my shelf of Gideon's Bible. I've still got it. I've actually got it in the box there. I smuggled it out of prison. <laughs> it was my first Bible. Apparently that was okay, though. I got permission afterwards. Because uh, it meant so much to me. I'd be reading the Gospels, and they made sense. Started, I, could, you know, I read the Bible before on times. didn't understand it. But now, as I was reading the Gospels, reading about Jesus, it came alive. And I always used to remember people, when they shared their testimony, they would be like, you know, that light switch was switched on. And I recognized that. Yeah, I can see that now. And God would speak to me through his word, almost give me that reassurance that he was there, he was for me, he wasn't against me, that he had a plan and purpose for my life and he was going to help me through, even though I did fail up, foul up on many occasions when I was in prison. And uh, I was so glad to know God's grace and mercy and that he is a God of the second chance. And maybe some of you in here tonight need to know there is a God of the second chance and it doesn't matter how many times you've messed up or fouled up or failed. God's love's unconditional and he wants you to know that forgiveness, you can experience his forgiveness tonight. You can experience his his love. And I'm so glad I experienced that on multiple occasions in prison. And uh, and he helped me through and I started to pray and see God answer prayers in prison. And that's really started my, my journey with Jesus. And, um, and uh, obviously, I got out of prison in 2004, and I started a discipleship or a rehabilitation program in a church called the Foundry and Witness that ran a, a light, the Lighthouse Foundation, which was a rehab for men run by Christians. And I chose to go on this program because I still had vulnerabilities and I'm so glad I was honest with myself because I didn't want history to repeat itself. I didn't want to put my family through what I put them through because of the mistakes I actually made in prison. So I was determined for that never to happen. So I walked through the doors June 1st, 2004, and that was the day I gave Jesus 100%. And I've not looked back since. I experienced freedom from any tendency to ever want to go back to that lifestyle, to ever want to use drugs, go back to any of that kind of environment. And now I just saw an acceleration of change and transformation. Got people around me who believed in me, who prayed for me. We had our Bible studies and prayer meetings. And I just got really excited now about my future. And God was was preparing me then to work there because I started to have compassion for some of the other lads in there. And I just wanted to help them, help other addicts. And I ended up working after graduating from the program after 16 months. I worked there as a full-time support worker for four, four and a half years. 
So I suppose you could say God was using my mess and turning it into a message to help other people. So I worked there for four years. During that time, met my wife who was at the church there. We got married. We've been married 15 years now, which is a miracle in itself. Never thought that would happen because of my background. And and uh, certainly interesting when I met her dad, who was a crime prevention officer. So. <laughs> God's got a sense of humor. And his name is Paul, Paul Daniels as well, my hero growing up, watching him um, doing tricks on TV when I was in the 80s. So uh, that's, uh, that's Were God's you scared sense when you humor. first met him, knowing his background? <laughs> I thought it was more humorous to me, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, you know, cause I, yeah, he, yeah, he was a good man. It was just one of those funny moments, really. And, uh, and yeah, and so I'm seeing just God now change my life. The Bible says when we put him first, things change. Things, you know, our lives do get transformed. And, uh, you know, the Bible says that, you know, he adds all of the good things for our lives when we put him first. And I'm just seeing all these things. I'm not saying it was been plain sailing, like I said. You know, when I said yes to Jesus, everything has been a... um, plain sailing or a bed of roses if any christian tells you that they're not telling the truth you know we need god's grace and mercy every single day and and uh and when you put him first you, you experience that and then i heard about cap in 2009 um went to my church leader i said we need to do cap here there's people in debt there's people contemplating suicide in our in our community in our towns there's parents going out without food so that they can feed their kids that's not okay and within six months um, we did. We ran a cap debt centre, and I was a debt centre manager. So I left doing the rehab stuff and uh, uh, work, and I ended up becoming a debt centre manager, which was again quite ironic because of all the debt I was once in. And I used to get people in debt through the drugs, and now I'm a debt centre manager helping other people out of debt. Again, that role reversal. Okay, nothing is impossible with God when you put him first. God wants to use every part of your life, your past, your history, the good, the bad, the ugly. God wants to use it. He really does, so that you can bring hope to other people. Sometimes we just got to go on that journey of being cleaned up and healed and restored for then for God to use us to, to lead other people to that place, okay? Because we've all got a story to tell. We've all got a past. And God uses it all because he's amazing. So 13 years at CAP, uh, five years debt center manager, and seven, eight years where I was traveling around, speaking at events like this for clients in different churches, bringing this message of hope that there can be a better tomorrow. Transformation is possible. You don't have to remain in this pit of despair any longer. There is hope, and his name is Jesus Christ. Thank you, Rod. Rod, um, what difference would you say that Jesus has made to you personally? In your life, like, what does it yeah. does, like, does think, it make in your life today? Yes, I, th- I think you know. Two Corinthians five seventeen says that when we're in Christ, we're a new creation. All the old things pass away, and everything becomes new. And that's what I feel. Ever when I first said yes to Jesus, I felt a brand new creation. And uh, you know, it's sort of internally, it was as if I had this internal spring clean. And, uh, and it, it was just felt different. And I became unrecognizable again then to my friends and family. One, one of my friends said to me, Rod, just for a good, in a good way. In a good way, yeah, yeah. So I became unrecognizable in a bad way and then unrecognizable in a good way. One of my friends who I used to do everything with bad, after the two and a half years, he'd not seen me and he spent half a day with me. He said, it's going to take me six months to get to know you again. You're a different person, Rod, the, the person I knew. He said, I want what you've got. He ended up getting saved. It was amazing uh, coming to Christ and, and meeting Jesus. So what I'm saying, that's what I feel. I feel brand new. That's what Jesus has done. He's given me peace that I'd never had before. He's given me joy, an inexpressible joy that I'd never had before. And he's almost given me a glimpse of what is to come in heaven. 
because I'm, you know, we experience this on earth um, in, at a measure, but there's more of this to come in the future. So he's healed me, he's transformed me, um, he's made me more of a compassionate person. You know, I'm a husband, I'm a dad. I was never those things before because of, 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 of the person I was before, which is a very much a different person. It was the old Rod, the old man. Yeah, Rod, so you're, you're a husband, you're a dad. Um, you said earlier that there's a 19-year age, you know, there's a big gap between your older daughter and your younger daughter. Could you explain to us why that is? Yes, so five years ago, God put it on my wife's heart. She'd been praying, and Kate said to me, Rod, I think God wants us to adopt a child. And I know it's going to be difficult because of your past and all your drugs convictions, because I've only given you a snippet. And she said, will you pray about it? So I prayed for six months, and, and then we spoke again. And I thought, okay, I feel yeah, I feel we need to do this. And she said, yeah, also, I think God wants us to adopt a child with Down syndrome. And okay, I said, Look, let's pray for another six months. And I didn't say that. I said, um, I said, okay, and to be actually, that was, I was like, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I really feel right about this. And, uh, and God spoke, we haven't got time for this, but God spoke to, 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 um, to my wife in, a, in, a, in an amazing way, in a dream, and my wife never as any of those dreams, but it was so clear and vivid. So we went on a journey then of going through the approval process, which we did get approved after 12 months, which was a miracle because of all my convictions, and we had to get approved and look into my past, which took ages. And then, um, yeah, October 2000, sorry, July, June 2017, um, we, were, we were at a wedding, July, sorry, and our social worker phoned. We were at a wedding in Wales, and she said, you never guess what? Um, a, tw- a, a baby's been born and uh, the parents don't feel that they, they can cope because of, she has a disability, she's got Down syndrome, so they've, uh, they've relinquished her, they've, they've given her up for you know, adoption. Um, we'd love you to come and see, and see um, the, the, the baby. So as soon as we could, we went to see the baby. And as soon as we held Chloe in our, in our arms, we just knew straight away that this, this was God's gift for us. And I just remember holding her as if it was yesterday, just holding her in, a, in, a, in my arms and just feeling a love. I don't think I've ever experienced before. before. And we were just so overwhelmed just seeing this bundle of beauty. It was only four and a half pounds. She was born premature she, and, uh, and she was very small. But we just so much of a love. And I always tell people, you know, that gives me a glimpse of God's heart for us. Because the Bible talks about you know, that when we become a Christian, we, be, we become adopted into God's family. We become his children. He becomes his dad. Almost gives me, and that gave me a glimpse of how much love, even more so, that God has for us when we come into relationship with him. When I was holding little Chloe in my arms. So she's four now. Uh, she's going to be five in July. She's got Down syndrome, and she's doing so, so well. Everybody, lo- oh, whenever we're out, everybody comes over and just says, oh, she's beautiful, she's amazing, and, and uh, she just, yeah, she's really making a difference in people's lives. She certainly made a difference in my wife and I, so she's a little beauty, or treasure we call her, and uh, yeah, she's just incredible. I'll bring, it, I'll bring my wife and little Chloe next. So my 23-year-old lives in Guernsey, and she's amazing as well. Thanks, Rod. That's, that's so good to hear. Rod, you've just yeah. sh- shared your testimony very briefly with us today, but you, you've also written a book. I have. I have. The Real Deal. And uh, 2014, this was published, and I've got a real deal offer for you tonight. So I wrote it because I wanted to know, for people to know that there is hope and healing, and it's very, you know, obviously it goes through my story, but 
you know, I'd say it's quite very evangelistic as well, but in a good way, not in a way that puts people off. So normally they're about seven or eight, where well, they're 8.99 on Amazon actually, but tonight, if you want to buy two, you can have them for five pound each, two for 10 pounds. And uh, so come and see me after I've got a few copies. And it's great. I know John Phillips is here tonight and he's helped me get about four or 5,000 copies in the prisons. And uh, I know that, you know, that has, has an impact because reading similar books, you know, really, you know, was a big link in the chain of me coming to faith. So come and see me afterwards uh, for one of the books. So this book would be great for, uh, to encourage Christians oh, to, to, just to see how God has been at work in your life, but also non-Christians. Christians, non-Christians. And actually, um, there's about four or five family members that write something in the book from their perspective. So my mum was a prayer warrior. I didn't say this. She prayed 24-7 prayer. 24-7, she didn't stop praying. And it just gives you an example of persistent prayer. She believed one day God would come into my world and rock it and change it. And, try, and, and that's what happened. It didn't, didn't happen in her timing, but it happened in God's timing. But she didn't give up praying. So she talks about that. My dad talks about his perspective being a policeman mum. And my sister talks about her perspective being a prison officer in the prison I was in. She had to lock me up at night and she had to open me up in the morning. So it's, it's, it's a bit different than your normal testimony and everybody can read it and get something from it and be inspired. And wasn't that weird, your sister being it a was. prison officer? It was awful. Uh, in, <laughs> it, now, it was awful initially, but we ended up becoming um, we got on better in prison than we, we probably did for the previous 10 years, to be honest. Uh-huh. So, yeah, she was great. Rod, thank you so much. Folks, we still have one final magic trick from, from Rod to come. But now, I thought I'd, we'd move on to a, um, to a well-known story found in John's Gospel in the Bible, which we might be tempted to think was also just a magic trick. It's a story of Jesus turning water into wine. If you're familiar with the story, I wouldn't be surprised if you thought to yourself, did Jesus really turn water into wine? I mean, come on. What if the people back then were just, were just a bit gullible? Or what if they were tricked into believing that he turned water into wine? And maybe you've also wondered, look, what's the point of someone turning water into wine anyway? This happened 2,000 years ago. How is that relevant to me? I think the account in John's gospel helps us answer some of those questions. So please do pick them up. They're on your tables. Uh, Pick up a copy of John's gospel. And we're going to turn to page four. So we're in page four. In case you're unfamiliar with John's gospel, this is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life written by his close friend and associate, John. So let's dive into the story to see if it was just a bit of magic or if it was something else. So page four, chapter two. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. By the way, Jesus 
isn't being rude here when he addresses his mother as woman. Uh, in the original language, it would have been similar to our ma'am or madam. Let's continue. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Imagine you're at a friend's birthday barbecue on a hot sunny day. A hot sunny day, really hard to imagine right now, right? You're there and you're casually chatting to the person next to you as you queue to get your delicious double sausage bap. And out of the corner of your eye, you can see your favorite drink on the table just beyond where the sausages are. Because it's sweltering, you just cannot wait to get your hands on that ice-cold Coke or Carlsberg. But alas, just as you pick up your sausages and are about to collect the drink, the person in front of you grabs the last one. And there are no more drinks available, apart from lukewarm tap water. There's not even any ice. You're now going to have to eat the sausage back without the help and the joy of that chilled Coke or Carlsberg. How do you feel? I'll tell you how I feel. Devastated. I'm going to have to eat this bap dry or have it with warm tap water. Now, friends, as sad as I'd be not to have a cold drink with my bangers, the situation at this wedding that Jesus is at is immeasurably worse this isn't just a birthday barbecue. This is, this is a wedding. And it isn't even a 21st century wedding. It's a first century wedding in Cana, a village in northern Palestine. Now, do you know how much meaning people back then in this part of the world would attribute to a wedding? It was regarded as the most important event of your life. The wedding wasn't only about the union of a couple, but it was also the, the recognition of the couple's entry into adulthood. But there's, there's a problem at this wedding, isn't there? They've run out of wine, probably the only drink option they had. Now, do you know whose responsibility it would have been to ensure that there was an ample supply of wine for the celebrations. The bridegrooms. Now, imagine how he must feel when he discovers that they've run out of wine. It's the biggest day of his life. And most likely, the entire village is there. Now, although we, we live in a very individualistic society today here in the West, Palestine would have been highly tribal. Everyone in the community would have known each other and embedded into the community would have been a, a culture of honor and shame. So if you live up to the community's expectations and norms, you're accepted but if you fail to, you're ostracized and humiliated. So 
so how might running out of wine affect the bridegroom? If everyone finds out about the situation, this will ruin his reputation. And you can imagine what, you can only imagine what his in-laws are going to think. Imagine how embarrassed they're going to feel that they've allowed their daughter to marry this man whom the whole community is going to be looking down on. Socially, the stakes for this, for this bridegroom couldn't be higher. His reputation and his place in the community are on the line. Let's read the rest of the story from verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. Jesus has just turned water into wine. And it's not like he's just turned one glass of water into wine. There were six stone water jars, each holding between 80 and 120 liters. So Jesus has just produced the equivalent of around 800 bottles of wine. Now, folks, I don't know exactly how big this wedding, this wedding reception is, but I think it's fair to assume that there's going to be plenty of wine to go around. Since we're thinking about Jesus turning water into wine, Rod, tell us, has, has everyone ever asked you to turn water into wine at a wedding? Someday. Would you like to do it for us tonight? I'd like to what, do that. Um, do you want to give it a go? I could give it a go. Um, I'm not promising anything. Um, use that. Wow, that is impressive. <laughs> Any weddings coming up? I'll come. Who would like to taste this? Who would like to give this a taste? David, why don't you give it a taste? Not too much. Don't want you getting tipsy. Now tell us, does that taste like wine? Did it taste good? <laughs> it tasted like water. Thank you, Rod. Please go have a seat. Folks, can Rod turn water into wine? No, he can't. 
He can perform a magic trick, but he can't perform a miracle. Only Jesus can do that. When, when David tasted Rod's wine, it was obvious to him that it wasn't wine. Most of us know what wine tastes like, right? So we can tell whether what we're drinking is wine or something else. And the same would have been true of the people in Cana at this wedding. The taste test proved Rod's wine to be fake. But the taste test proved Jesus' wine to be genuine. And not only was it genuine, it was the best wine. Did you notice how the, the master of ceremonies commends the bridegroom for the wine's quality? Friends, do you see what Jesus has done? Do you see how he's, he's saved the bridegroom's reputation? Indeed, he's not only saved it, he's actually enhanced it. By, by creating this top-notch wine, he's causing the bridegroom to be praised. When, when you picture Jesus, I wonder how you tend to, to imagine him. Do you see him as this man who turned water into wine? Or do you just think that he was a really nice guy, he was a good teacher, who was maybe a bit boring? I suspect that some people think Jesus would have more likely turned wine into water than water into wine. But it's not the picture of Jesus that we see when we read about him in the eyewitness accounts. Folks, Jesus comes to bring joy. Did you know that in the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy and celebration? Folks, Jesus' miracle here is loaded with meaning. And it shows us why he came to earth. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God had revealed in the Old Testament that he would and I quote, prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And then he says that he would remove his people's disgrace. Do you see what Jesus is doing when he turns the water into wine? As the one who, who gives us the finest of wines and as the one who removes the, the shame or disgrace from the bridegroom, he's showing us that he's, that he's God. He's doing something that God said he would do. And there are many instances like this in John's gospel. And it's because he does this that the disciples respond the way they do when they witness it. Have a look with me at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. That is his divine glory, the glory of God. And his disciples believed in him. Friends, the, 
The disciples saw what Jesus did, and they connected the dots. What Jesus, what Jesus does, no mere human being can do. Even Rod, as gifted as he is, cannot turn water into wine. Only, only God can do that. And Jesus can do it because he's God. That's who he says he is. So how will we respond to him? Will we recognize him for, for who he is and honor him as the disciples did? Or will we keep him at arm's length? Later on in John's gospel, it says that if we believe and serve Jesus as God, that we will have eternal life with him. Our whole theme this week is life. And what we've seen today in in John's gospel is just a glimpse of what life in heaven with Jesus will be like. He will remove all our shame and guarantee that we have joy in abundance. Here is the life that Jesus offers. If you haven't already, I wonder if you'll consider accepting it. Or at the very least, consider looking into it. We are going to be running these sessions called Exploring Jesus that is starting um, on the 28th of June. Uh, There are three sessions, and in these sessions, we'll continue looking at Jesus in this eyewitness account, in this gospel of John. And it'll be an opportunity for you to, to look at Jesus a bit more closely and also to ask any questions that, that you might have. And look, you can come to as many or as few sessions as you'd like. The sessions are completely free. We're not going to try and sell you anything when you come. It's all free and there are no strings attached. So if you come to one and you think, that was naff, I don't want to come again, that's totally fine. If you are interested in coming along, uh, you can sign up. There are some forms on your tables. Please fill in, uh, fill in one of those, or you can head on over to our website, and you can sign up that way as well. And if you want to find out more, just ask a bit more questions about it, feel free to, to grab me afterwards and chat with me. Folks, we're coming to a, an end, to, to the close of our time together uh, this evening. I just want to say thank you for joining us. And Rod, thank you so much for sharing your story and for also for performing for us. Why don't we give Rod a round of applause? <laughs> Folks, I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Feel free to stick around and chat and have some refreshments. And I hope to see you at one of our other events in the coming days. Have a great evening.